The risen dead swarmed all about the farmhouse, smashing at windows and doors, doing everything they could to get in. From the stables, a horse burst free with a rider, an old man with ill-fitting armor, and a pitchfork for a lance. He rode forth, unable to discern friend from foe, and attacked the party on accident. From inside, they could hear the screams of the woman, as she defended herself with her crossbow. Jarrus burst through the back door of the farmhouse, just in time to see a ghoul tear the throat out of the farmer's wife. It came for him, with tooth and claw, and a sudden paralysis spread throughout his body, and he fell to the ground at the mercy of the foul creature. This is Anatomy of a Campaign. We had ourselves a fascinating little session where a lot of what I had predicted really came to pass, but one of the core things, maybe the most central thing I was attempting to achieve, was so impacted by the scene I described at the top of the podcast that it made sense to course correct and portray the main NPC introduction in a way that I had not actually intended. My goal with the the old farmer was to introduce a comedic character, someone who could be exceedingly grumpy and could provide counterbalance to the weightiness that had been present in recent sessions. But because of the way the party first encountered this character and the way things developed, specifically with his wife being brutally savaged by a ghoul and him riding forth in a desperate attempt to save her, she became, and he became, recast as far more sympathetic characters, noble characters, characters that were hardy and tough and willing to fight for their lives. Additionally, because of the graphic nature of her near demise, that's right, she managed to survive, it did not make sense to have the scene that I portrayed in the last podcast. In an RPG, you never know what's going to happen. And that, I think, is the primary lesson that we'll eventually talk about in, in this audio journal, that it's important to have a plan. It is equally important to throw that plan out the window and go with the flow so that things fulfill expectations which crop up during the immediate moment. It's kind of a strange idea, and stay with me, I'm just noodling it at the moment. My intent was to have these characters not really love each other that much, right? The farmer and the farmer's wife. The intent was to have them sniping at each other for comedic effect. But because of the way the party chose to engage with the farmhouse encounter, because it took them so long to get to the farmhouse itself, because they did not, in the beginning prioritize saving the civilians, but rather killing the undead. Shocking in a D&D party, I know. The dead gained the house, and the farmer's wife was grievously injured. I could tell that the party was perceiving this situation as being predominantly heroic. Of course they were, right? The the farmer bursts out of the stable. He has an old breastplate on. He's got a pitchfork. 
he actually ends up semi-attacking the party. They're shouting at him that they're on his side. They show a lot of restraint, as you would normally expect, but you never know, again, with a D&D party whose nucleus is that of mercenaries. In the aftermath of the attack on the farmhouse and them saving the wife and the, the husband so heroically attempting, even in his elderly, weakened state, to, a, to attempt to save her. It all came across as romantic and noble and sweet, and to then introduce this bickering couple that don't seem to genuinely like each other was really off-tone at this point. So I changed course, and I just leaned into it, and I played the character far more laconic than had ever been my intention. Post-game, I received an email from, from Joe playing the half-orc fighter Bren, suggesting that it would be a personal goal of his character to learn from the old guy. As a member of the Rootlands, he was a mounted soldier. Everyone in this particular society is required to be so, and that's his past. He was a soldier in the, the army of the Rootlands, fighting with Lance from horseback. It's interesting, the point of inspiration for this one character, saying it would be an interesting arc for him to try to get to know this older fighter character and try to learn from him and... I'm just struck by the, the difference in my original intent to change up things on the fly from their original intention, sort of course correct based on what was happening in the situation. The farmhouse encounter, the battle at the farm, could have easily taken a, a turn for the worse. There was a lot of undead all over the map. I was using Strahd zombies versus just regular zombies, which was a lot of fun. Anytime you do slashing or bludgeoning damage of five or greater, you roll to see what body part comes flying off of them. We had a lot of zombie legs flopping about. The ghouls and the one gas turned out to be almost completely useless in the fight. Mir cast... I'm blanking on the name of the spell, but it's basically these spectral thorns that rise up out of the ground. It creates this zone where every five feet of movement you go through the the region you take 1d4 damage and with undead i basically ruled that they're just not smart enough in the case of the zombies and that they would charge through it without thinking even as they were taking the damage and there were a whole bunch of them that got wiped out coming through the zone in addition the ghast which was the most powerful thing on the board i gave it an intelligence roll to see if it could overcome its animal instincts and it failed miserably and it literally ran through the zone to its death and that's how the ghast <laughs> was taken out the ghouls were able to gain the farmhouse and there was an interesting battle because one of them attacked Jarus the, the bard, and he failed his saving throw and was paralyzed, but the others were right behind him. He wasn't ever really in any big, big danger the way you can be from ghoul attacks where the paralysis kicks in. And then by the end of it, what I was intending to be the comedic turn turned into something a lot more touching, as they were so impressed with this elderly pair of farmers who were defending their farm with their very lives that it had this real positive ending where the party is now talking to the farmer. The goal, of course, in coming to the farm was that they need this farmer to come with them in order to resurrect Voss. He comes from a, a bloodline that goes back 
thousands of years to the ancient druids that served the Morrigan. And having that conversation with him and seeing that he still kept to the old ways to a certain degree, that he had a necklace of the Morrigan, and seeing the party connect with that and finding that to be a positive thing and wanting to have personal connections with that, it's so interesting to me because sometimes you get a very cynical reaction from players in your game to certain things. Something about this seemed to resonate with everyone, and we were able to achieve an emotional moment at the end that was very positive. I think left everyone feeling like this was something powerfully important in the game for their character, from Mir recognizing that this is ancient druidic information and history, to Jarus, who saw connections between his father far from a from a land far to the north who he's come to believe may have also worshipped the Morrigan in his own way. To Bren, who was so impressed by the hardiness of these people that he wanted to have a personal connection with them. But also playing up the cleric power of our new Kenku, Nakiri, and what that looks like, what that feels like. I think by the end of it, it was a it was one of our more satisfying sessions in that there was some interesting role playing, there was party decisioning throughout. It was a really interesting tactical challenge, and in the end, it was against a foe they were able to decimate. And I think the party after the trials and tribulations they needed that big win. I think what can make a good dungeon master great is the ability to seize opportunities when they present themselves. And a lot of times that necessitates throwing out the thing you had intended to happen in quote unquote your story and embracing a story that the players are beginning to tell themselves. And thinking back on the many years I've been dungeon mastering and game mastering, I'd say the greatest sessions I've had all involve this to some degree. If you see that your players are glomming onto something and finding some story element within your adventure compelling, if they're attaching themselves to it, and they often do this in a way that makes assumptions that you might not have originally intended, from a purist standpoint, you'd look at that and you'd say, no, no, I said that this A and B and C were going to be true, and that would get revealed. So in my case, the farmer and his wife were really not very happy with each other, and he was desperate to get away from her because he found her to be a bit of a nag, and she found him to be a bit of an idiot. From a pure standpoint, that would still have to hold true, right? But the way the whole session was coming about and the things that the players were doing drove a different narrative, a different set of outcomes. And they interpreted certain actions as heroic on the part of the farmer and his wife. The opportunity was to play into that, to say it's more important that this detail, which the players are finding resonant be what they think it is than me suddenly twisting it back to what I had originally intended. Again, it's not my story. I have a cringe reaction whenever I hear or see game masters online describing writing. They use this with this verb. I'm, I'm currently writing a campaign. I believe that the building block for a campaign is player choice. You present a scenario 
scenario to the players and they react to it, stimulus and response. And they do the same to you. They'll present something and then as the game master, you are responding to that. It is the response that is the core molecular building block of role-playing games. At any time, you should be thinking, what is it I can do with their interpretation of events and the actual elements of the story that I've presented. I'm not advocating to completely change certain elements based on their misconception. That's that's why I position this as knowing when to seize on an opportunity. And that opportunity is almost always found within story, not structure or mechanics or anything like that. It's actually more about the emphasis that certain things are being given, the emotional tone certain things are being given, the reactions of NPCs. By morphing and adapting to the feedback in real time you're getting from the players in-game, that's how the group can structure the story. And as the dungeon master, uniquely at the table, you are the only one that can do this. The players can't read your intentions and then change what they're doing. I guess they technically could, but who cares? What does it matter? The dungeon master in control of everything else, the NPCs, the environment, the situation, the weather, you have the ability to adjust things around player perception and intention at any given moment to emphasize their expectations. It can be done counter to that. It can be done to achieve a twist. It can be done to emphasize them. It can be done to to make them feel super smart. And these are the kinds of opportunities that if you see them, and usually it's a function of the enthusiasm of the players at your table, if they've got something that they've now become somewhat enthusiastic about, and you do not choose to lean into that, you need to understand why you skipped that opportunity. Because I think one of the errors that a lot of DMs and GMs make in games is adhering too closely to their own intentions and stories and not seeing the opportunity to take what the players are giving you and turn out a group story that in the end will be that much better. The other smaller lesson worth noting is describing the magical effects in your campaign in a way that emphasizes the awe and wonder. Specifically, I'm referring to the cleric power of our new Kenku. Taylor had forgotten to use Turn Undead at the beginning of the encounter, and then it dawned on her. So she turns undead, she uses it on a bunch of these Strahd zombies, and it removes a whole bunch bunch of them from the field. They go running away. I described it as affecting all of the living folks around her and her party. I made sure in the narrative to make this about awesome godly power. It was an action and a potency that leaned into both the overall theme of the campaign, where the one true god had left the world and there haven't been real clerics in hundreds of years, as well as paying off something that is one of the most unique and potent things about the cleric as a class. And where this pays off is later in the session, when the party is talking to the farmer and his wife, trying to convince him that he should come with them to the town of Borlane that they need him in order to save their friend, that he has the ability to activate this temple in some special way. Joe, playing Bren, uses that clerical power example in that role-playing encounter. 
He says to the man, I've never seen anything like this. This is new. This is special. Having presented the clerical power, done it in a more overt manner, described it as special, gone beyond just the role, the saving throws, does it work, but making sure to thread the theme of the campaign through that moment and what a character, a player character, has done. And to then have that, have another character in a subsequent key role-playing encounter cite that moment as something special and interesting and more importantly something moving was a really great moment for me as a dungeon master it's a setup and a payoff that i'm not completely in control of it was initiated by taylor playing the cleric i jumped in and did a description to give it a special emphasis and later on joe comes forward and cites that as a means to achieve their goal of getting this farmer to come with them to Borlane. It's noteworthy because it's illustrative of how this game can come together and create story and moments out of just simple things, but do it in a way that, that's more powerful than any one individual could manage by themselves. Overall, I came away feeling really good about the last session. That doesn't always happen. We dungeon masters are often harder on ourselves than anybody else is. And I'm always sensitive to making sure everyone at the table is able to shine and have their moment. I've been talking quite a bit over several episodes of this podcast about trying to get Joe's Battlemaster Fighter to, to utilize their new abilities, give them an opportunity to strut their stuff. And this was shockingly the first time we were able to pull that off. That's mostly a function of scheduling. It was really nice to see how engaged he became as a result of, of facing this tactical encounter and how he really connected with one of the the npcs it was awesome to see the dynamic in the group there was this wonderful moment where you could see the focus of each of the characters help to define them mir is very much about survival he approached the encounter as, we need to protect ourselves, there's just a horde or a lot of zombies on the board. And he wasn't taking a let's-go-rescue-them approach. This is a true neutral character. He was taking the approach of, we have to defend ourselves, we have to make sure that the threat is gone before we make any moves to risk our lives for someone else. The other party members had very different motivations. I think the Kenku cleric took the opportunity, at least in the beginning, to fight the undead, right? Mir was about how can we protect ourselves in this dangerous situation. The cleric was about how can I destroy these undead at first and later pivoted to how can I save these people. Bren and Jarrus both risked their lives to get to the farmhouse when it became evident to them that the undead were going to get in the house before they could get there otherwise. And so they waded through a whole horde of difficulties, a literal horde of undead, in order to try to get to the farmer's wife and help to protect her. Everyone was much more comfortable, I think, with those kind of objectives. One of the things that has been a struggle with this campaign is the party motivation. We designed it initially to be far more mercenary, and I know from the standpoint of living out a 
fantasy, to do things that you don't get to do in your normal life. Pursuing a more mercenary and self-serving approach is something that is attractive. You want to be a pirate. You want to be someone that kicks ass and takes names. You want to be someone that doesn't care very much about what other people think. But in practice, it's my experience that you need heroic elements to really pull this off easily. It's not to say that neutral or even evil campaigns can't work. I think they're harder and they necessitate a very focused group orientation on how you're going to do that. It's not easy, right? It's it's way easier to be the good guy. That is something that we all know from fiction and movies and television and we're talking about an entire life's experience on what heroes are and how they react in certain situations versus characters who are either self-serving very business-oriented mercenaries or even full-on evil while those things can be incredibly exciting i think the capacity to pull those off well is one that works best with players that A, know each other really, really well. And my players, this is their, a lot of them, this is the first campaign they've ever gamed together in. B, you need to have the appropriate dramatic framework, which I don't think we have in this campaign. And C, you need to have an arc that, if not defined, at least understood. I'm not going to enjoy a bunch of psychopaths doing horrific things. And I don't think most people would. When they play an evil character, they want to have a plot. They want to have an idea. They want to have something they're looking to accomplish. They're sort of the cool bad guy, as opposed to the murderous lunatic. As you construct a campaign with temperaments and motivations that may be on the darker side of the spectrum. You need to go about it in a very, very pointed way. I don't think we've had that set up so, so much, and therefore this move to a more heroic framework where they're going to risk their lives to save the farmer's wife is far more comfortable. It's something that just works better. And my sense after the session was over was it was just more satisfying for everyone at the table. And in conversations with Mike playing Constantine out of game, he sort of identified that as well as something he's shifting towards with his character. All this to say, I believe we're now much more on the same page. And coming out of this session, I'm pretty excited for what's to come because moving from this, we're heading towards the adventure at Borlane. Agora Maya has been set up as this major villain. They're looking for the Balnexicon. They're finally getting to the place where it's supposed to be. And on top of that, there's this temple. And somehow, within the temple, they're going to find a way to resurrect their fallen comrade Voss. This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. If you're enjoying the podcast, the best thing you can do is help us extend and promote our listenership. Depending on the platform you use for podcasts, you can give us a review, you can like, you can click the heart button, or you can reach out to us on social media. I'm on Twitter at AnatomyCamp, and you can reach me via email at phil at campaignanatomy.com. Thank you for listening.